You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Michael L. Perlis. Uh, he's a professor at University of Pennsylvania in behavioral sleep medicine. So, Mike, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. In the, I mean, the world of sleep medicine is uh, pretty wide. So where's your focus there? Are you focused on insomnia or you know, lucid dreaming? or what's your? Oh, God, no. Um no, I've been in the area for a long time, um, since the 1980s. And it's not because I'm 70 or 80 years old, but instead because I came into the area, the field very young, like early 20s. Cause I knew that was my interest. Uh, interesting that you mentioned lucid dreaming. I was not interested per se in lucid dreaming, but very interested in the function of dreaming. And started that way and swore that the two things I would never have an interest in would be, well, three or four things would be insomnia in general, CBTI, or better known back then as CBT for insomnia, um, or placebo research. None of that held any interest for me whatsoever. And you know what I do 90% of the time now? <laughs> Those three what? things. So insomnia, CBTI research, and placebo research. So it's funny how these things work out. Um, yeah. Having said that, don't feel the need to keep your questions constricted to insomnia uh, or CBT or placebos because, you know, my command of sleep medicine in general is pretty good. And where I don't have good answers for you, I'll be super clear about that. Well, if you don't mind, let me ask you about dreaming uh, just a little bit. I, so, for instance, I had a uh, a friend literally that told me today that she wasn't dreaming and she changed something in her bedroom, the sleep situation. Now she's dreaming. She doesn't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Any any knowledge or articles on whether it's better or not to experience dreams or just sleep as if you had no dreams? So, assuming, and it's a big assumption, that REM sleep, not REM, REM is a band, REM sleep is the same thing as dreaming, which I would argue it is, and I hope to God that it is, 
because I don't like the alternative meanings. It's generally the case that we remember little to nothing about what we dream. And the where I was getting to with that is there are at least three to five REM periods a night. And assuming that dreaming and REM sleep are one and the same, which I hope they are, um, that's something around an hour to an hour and a half of, of dreaming sleep per night and over five, three, four, five occasions. So if all of us biologically dream that much, it's rather remarkable that most of us remember so little. And it's almost as if it's meant to be that way. And I would argue that it is meant to be that way, that that system exists probably, we, we don't know for sure, but probably to do many things. And some of it has to do with periodically warming up the engine of your brain. Um, in other words, periodic activation. Some of it may have to do with regulate, uh, memory consolidation, at least for certain kinds of memory. And some of it, m people have thought for since time in memoriam, has something to do with mood regulation. It's almost as if when people say sleep on it, you'll feel better in the morning. What they really mean is dream on it and you'll feel better in the morning. And that is actually the proposition that brought me into sleep medicine and sleep research is I believed at the time and to this day uh, in the absence of hard data that dreaming is a unique process where we re-experience bits and pieces of things that stress us out. But we do so in a state where you're not capable of emotionally, physiologically, emotionally responding. You can't cry. You can't run. You can't shiver. You can't shake. You can't flush. You can't move. And to most behaviorists, that phenomenon of experiencing stuff that stresses us out in a body that's cold as a cucumber, and quite literally, by the way, you're also cold that during REM sleep, you thermoregulate differently and your body temperature drops. So the expression, you know, a cold response or the absence of response kind of fits dreaming, which is on the one hand, you're re-experiencing bits and pieces of things that stress you out. And on the other hand, you have no response. And right. to people like me, that's called desensitization. And I proffered that as my first paper in 1988 or 89. It got no traction. <laughs> Nobody bought into it. I found it very hard to get funded. There are people that have followed up on it in very interesting ways. For example, a very famous guy named Matt Walker has made a fair amount of hay about this idea that dreaming and REM sleep may serve a mood regulation function. He's more interested in the brain components of this that I think are real as well. You know, how hot do the areas that are responsible for emotion experience, emotional experience run during dreaming? And he's noting that, you know, the memory systems seem full on, but the emotional systems don't. And so maybe that's desensitization. But whether it's Matt Walker's version of this or my version, and I did air quotes, which you can't see, my version of this, uh, it's probably both. Now, back to your question. Is it better to not remember? Probably. This is a system that's consolidating memory, re-experiencing memory, dealing with stuff that stresses you out. And it's probably best not to remember. Um, it's not the end of 
you know, it's not a, what's the expression? It's not a catastrophe. If you remember, sometimes maybe things get too charged up. They're too stressful, too emotional when you wake up. And maybe that's a good thing. Um, it's ending, you know, what may be too stressful. Um, but you gave a different example. You weren't talking about nightmares. You were talking about a small change to the environment. And suddenly this person is remembering their dreams. So my, I'll give you a short answer now to that. And the short answer is lots of things may serve to deepen or shallow your sleep. To the extent that your sleep is shallowed, there is an increasing probability that you will briefly awaken and stay awake for a little bit longer, long enough to put your memory of your dreams somewhere you can get to when you're awake. Normally, you can't do that. So her increased memory for dreaming may have to do with a small environmental change that shallowed her sleep in a non-pathological normal way. And for a little while, she's going to remember more about what she dreams, and there's probably no harm in that. Lucid dreaming, on the other hand, I have some strong opinions about. Um, this is a yeah, state. Yeah, this is a state that can be had. It is not easy to learn how to do it. Um, there are probably people who do it naturally, but I got to tell you, uh, lucid dreaming is like heroin. Um, or some altered state that you can't imagine ever competing with with wakefulness. If you can do anything, be anything, be with anyone, do anything, I think I said that one, um, you would start to lucid dream a lot. And number one, that may not be good for you because you should be in the world, uh, be awake, be alive, deal with reality. Number two is you may yeah. be in imposing on a system it's supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> so you may be interfering with the function of REM by using it for recreational purposes. Um, if you do it a little bit, probably not a big deal. If you do it a lot, probably is a big deal. So is it possible? Just one, one more thing on that. If, if, if you could routinely train people to do this, could it have some therapeutic value? Could a therapist, could a physician, could a clinician – guide you into using lucid dreaming for some purpose, probably. But that's not the norm. I just saw a paper and some data that suggested that lucid dreaming uh, by a fellow named uh, Jay Ellis at University of Northumbria in England, and I'm pretending he's not a really good friend, which he is, just saw some data from him suggesting that this may be a way to treat insomnia, which frankly is shocking. So it may have value I'm just saying using it for recreational purposes on a regular basis may be a bad idea. Maybe. Why were you concerned about the uh, the prospect of REM not being associated with dreaming or being associated with dreaming? What? Why is that because, bad? What else could it be associated with? Because dreaming is a wildly experiential thing. And I really want that to be associated with predictable levels of brain activity, because if it's true that in stages of sleep that resemble coma, you can be dreaming, that is a frightening prospect to me, because it means that our measures of what is conscious, what is brain alive, and what is brain dead are not good. 
and we are making decisions about life and death on flawed measures. We're assuming people are in vegetative states, in comas, are brain dead when they're not. That frightens me. So I would prefer to believe that high-end cognitive activity is predictable and does not occur in coma states and may be predicted by the kind of EEG that is typical of REM sleep, but not elsewhere. Now, you might say, is there a way around this little problem? <laughs> and there, there are. But it frightens me to think that we can have experience and consciousness in stages of sleep that resemble coma and near brain death. Doesn't it frighten you? I think, uh, I think we probably do, though, because, I mean, you know, there's plenty of times I haven't been aware of what's going on. You know, let's say I'm driving somewhere. I don't know how I got there. Or, you know, every night I fall asleep. I'm, I'm laying there. The next thing I know is I'm awake. Or, you know, if I'm lucky or I'm awake during the night. But I don't know. I never remember falling asleep. So I'm still alive, but I'm just not aware of what's going on. So that you can say that's scary, too. You can do a lot of things without being cognizant of them. Yeah, but I hear you. But there, you can, let me take your quote. There, are, You can do a lot of things without being aware or cognizant of the fact that you're doing them. But in wakefulness, forget about sleep and whether you know you're awake or asleep. Let's leave that as a separate issue. In wakefulness, you can say, yeah, I was awake. I just wasn't attentive. And I missed the entire trip because I was daydreaming or thinking or not thinking at all. But you would never claim that I was unconscious or I was, you know, you would have some awareness that you were conscious and alive. And that you were just inattentive. And inattentive states are not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about obtunded states, states like coma. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do have the feeling, though, that people probably, well, again, it's just a feeling. What do I know? But no, I no, no, listen, I, I, don't, I don't know yeah, any better than you do. And that in this case, and that it is entirely possible that people have levels of let's not use the word consciousness, levels of ability to perceive the world, to identify and respond in their minds to it, and to remember that whole process. That's consciousness. That that could be happening in all sorts of states. I'm just kind of hoping I mean, not. What, have, you, have you ever studied uh, people that have what they call near-death experiences, or if there's, you know, they're clinically dead for a, a minute or five minutes, and then they come back? And they experienced yeah. all these, uh, you know, going to the light. I mean, what's your thought on yeah. that phenomenon? Yeah, we're getting a little too far afield for me. But I would simply say this, that there's a lovely line by uh, in Princess Bride, the, the movie, where they go to meet up with Miracle Max, and they're asking if they can save this guy. And he goes, I don't know, he's dead, and, but just mostly dead. And so maybe there's some possibility of saving him. That's not a quote, but that's the gist of it. And the right. same thing with near death, that, you know, sadly, the dying process is probably not seconds. And that just because your heart stops or you flatline your EEG doesn't really mean you're com completely dead yet. And that you have experiences and maybe God is just and she floods you with endorphins at the at that moment and you have visions or maybe there's really a god maybe there's really a tunnel i don't know but the idea of 
their being consciousness where there should be no consciousness uh, is certainly possible. Um, I'm just saying from a neurobiologic measurement point of view, I would like to cling to the belief that we can monitor and have a good, reasonable sensitivity and specificity for consciousness and not. <laughs> I'm clinging to that. So I don't want to push this. This is getting a little too far from my field. This is more neo neurotheology than it is sleep medicine. I love that term. Um, so, let, But it's not irrelevant because when it comes to insomnia, a lot of this starts to come back up again, which is to a certain degree when you measure with EEGs or fMRI or PET or however you want to measure brain activity, there are discordances where in this case, instead of saying the brain is asleep or inactive, but you perceive, um, well, actually that is the instance that the the objective data is saying you're out and the subjective experience is, no, I'm not. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm getting all this. And that same phenomenon that you're sort of alluding to or you are alluding to with the near-death stuff happens with this insomnia issue as well. We run into it regularly where there are significant discordances between what we measure and what the person says. So let me give a concrete example. Let me give a concrete example real quick. I might do an EEG study of you, and let's say you have insomnia. And let's say typically it takes you an hour to fall asleep. Typically you're awake for an hour in the middle of the night, and typically you wake up for a half an hour before your alarm clock. And then we bring you to the lab, and we measure, and we give you, if we're smart, a sleep diary or some sort of questionnaire in the morning, and you report, yep, took a couple hours for me to fall asleep. I was awake for an hour in the middle of the night, and I definitely was awake for half an hour before you guys came and got me. And then we look at the record, and it says the opposite. It says you were out in 30 seconds, you slept the whole eight hours, and we had trouble awakening you and be, making you responsive. So we get these same weird discordances with our measures. And the only, the only moral I would share here with you is I am quite certain that neither are right and nobody's wrong. That when someone tells you this is my experience, there is reality to that, and there's a reality to the measure, and it's our job to figure out why they're not lining up. Not to say that one is wrong or the other is wrong. So this same issue of measurement and hoping things are what they seem comes up not only with near death, but also comes up with insomnia on a regular basis. That's true. I've, I've heard from different sleep people, like they'll have, uh, you know, patients that say they haven't slept in 20 years and that's not possible, you know, or people say they didn't sleep a week last night, but they did sleep, you know, so their, their thought and their actual experience were different. So let me help make that one easy. Um, while the machine and what you report are different, the machine is flawed in several ways or limited, just the same way that subjective is limited in some ways, subjective impressions, your experience are is limited in some ways as well. But the easiest way of thinking about this, it is entirely possible for your body to be asleep and large swatches of your brain to be asleep, but not all asleep. And so whatever has to do with minimal ongoing perception of the environment or minimal ongoing thinking 
or minimal ongoing dreaming, that will be just enough to make you say wake when the machines that measure it say sleep. And so people may have the experience of no sleep, and to them it was no sleep, because sleep is unconsciousness. And if you're not unconscious, if you're slightly or very aware of your environment, you can identify and form opinions or actions about it, um, and or remember that stuff hours to days later. Who's to say about the unreality of that? That's real to you, and yet what we measure says differently. So it is possible for your body and large swatches of your brain to be asleep, but not all asleep. And that little bit of wake may cause people to make very different attributions about consciousness. I am or I am not. And this is a new so idea, is, by the way. This is okay. new. We used, to, we used to think if it's sleep, it's universal, body, mind, every part of your brain, or not. And I was probably the first person to put into words, certainly not the first, first, first person to think of it, the real intellectual predecessors for this line of thinking of hybrid states are possible was um, they didn't use that language, but Wally Mendelssohn or Dick Bootson really came up with these ideas that maybe sleep isn't a universal thing. You either are, or you're not, you're alive or you're dead, you're awake or you're asleep. And I came forward very early in the 90s saying, here's how that could work. And there's been a lot of theory and work since saying, okay, it's possible that hybrid states exist, which to the patient, for example, may seem like continuous wakefulness and to our machines seem something else. Mike, you there? I'm here. Believe it or not, I was quiet. <laughs> no, I lost you for a quick second. Yeah. So what, what are the... Uh... We'll that out. What, what aspects of insomnia are still areas of exploration? You know, like I've seen a lot of people give therapy against CBTI for insomnia. It seems to work for the most part, but what are the unexplored explored areas of insomnia that maybe you're working on or looking at or are aware of? Well, first of all, while CBTI has been around in one form or another since the 70s, it wasn't until 2016 that the at least one branch of the medical community said, okay, this is the first line treatment for chronic insomnia. And even still, we haven't really, that hasn't caught on that 70% of people will have a treatment response to CBTI. And of those 70 50 to 70% of people within a year will resume normal sleep or at least average sleep. That's some really good efficacy. That's some really good effectiveness. Now, I gotta, I'm here to tell you, it ain't fun <laughs> and it ain't intuitive and you're not going to be liking the therapy or the therapist. But if you hang in there with it, you will be one of that 70% that has a treatment response and one of the 50 to 70% who have treatment responses that recover average sleep. It is a really, to me, it's the jewel in the crown of all of the CBTs, you know, be it CBT for pain, CBT for depression, what have you. Now, I say that in a very biased and uninformed way, but the problem now is not does it work and does it work for most people regardless of comorbidities. Okay, which is also a big difference. Back in the day, oh, sure, it works, but just for people with primary chronic insomnia. 
and that has been thoroughly debunked, thank gods. Um, so CBTI is the bung, it's the thing. We need more clinicians, and I work every day to make that happen. Um, but we're a long ways from having enough evidence-based providers, people who've been trained. Um, and the other part is we're a long ways from getting this reasonably reimbursed. It is still a fight with most insurance companies to pay for this therapy, for this procedure. And that's really annoying. Uh, and I don't have enough time in my days to fight that battle. I can only say one thing, which is everyone that listens to your podcast that has insomnia should explore how to identify a reasonable CBTI therapist. I have an idea on that. And then start calling their insurance company until they get it paid for. And if everybody starts to clamor, maybe the the bow will break, whatever that means. Um, there are ways to find therapists. Um, the easiest ways are to look for online directories, one of which I edit, which is, um, geez, I'm not really entirely sure, but it's something like www.cbtiproviderdirectory.com or something like that. If you Google it, it might come up. Um, maybe you and I should end the podcast by looking for what that exactly is called. But there are other ways. Uh, less extensive directories exist. But the one cautionary note here is just because somebody knows CBT in general, or even if they're an awesome expert CBT person for depression, doesn't mean they know jack about CBTI. And that's one of the big problems is how do we empower consumers, patients, to find uh, to find themselves with the right person in the right place. And that's frustrating. Um, getting enough people out there to provide and making sure that people can identify them. So those are some big missions, but at least the CBTI provider directory will help a little bit. Um, but there's still not a lot of them, you know. Well, two questions here. Why do you say people are not going to like it? What's so bad about CBTI therapy? It's so difficult. Everything. It's it's so opposite from what we do to help ourselves. So I was going to actually say this earlier. Um, if you Google insomnia, the first thing you're going to get back is garbage about sleep hygiene. And if I could change the world, and if not the world, just the internet, I would expunge every reference to sleep hygiene off the internet. It is a useless gutless, impotent strategy that was developed in the 70s with good intentions and maybe, maybe more relevant back then. I mean, maybe there were more madmen, and I mean the television show, Madison Avenue, madmen type people that were drinking 20 cups of coffee, having cocaine with dinner, and then dropping, you know, sleeping pills at night. Maybe that was more the norm that you know, people couldn't figure out that they were creating their own or perpetuating their own insomnias, but not so much anymore. And I just think sleep hygiene, it's nice, you know, people feel in control. I'll just eliminate coffee, which is, by the way, wrong, um, in my opinion. Um, people like sleep hygiene because it gives them an illusion of control and it's consistent with what they know and believe, which are there are things I can do that make me sleep and that ain't so. So 
CBTI is punishing grueling difficult because it's the opposite of what anybody could possibly expect would be the right things to do. That the logical thing to think of when you do not sleep well is I lost sleep. I should recover what I lost. Therefore, what I should do is go to bed early, get out of bed late. I will catch up and I will be fine. Wrong. Exactly the wrong thing to do. Um, that's called sleep extension. And sooner or later, you're going to find a permanent mismatch that you rise to a permanent mismatch between your ability and your opportunity. And that alone will keep your insomnia going forever. <laughs> that alone. So part of what CBTI is, is the counterintuitive rescheduling of sleep to align opportunity with ability. And when people discover how and what that means, they're, they're not happy campers. They're like, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm supposed to do. But it is the right thing to do. So earlier I was going to make a point. Let me make it now. <clears throat> There's a huge difference between acute insomnia and chronic insomnia. And we're just beginning to understand how different those things are. I would argue we are supposed to have acute insomnia. It is part of the human condition. It is adaptive and useful. Now, you might be thinking, how can insomnia ever be useful? That's like saying cancer is useful. Um, here's how. That There's a famous set of quotes I'm going to share with you, and you'll see if it rings true for you. The first is by the honorable and wonderful Art Spielman, who is the inventor of CBTI and is the inventor of the behavioral model of insomnia. He once said, <clears throat> sleep is adaptively deferred when the lion is at the mouth of the cave. Now, if that one's not clear enough, the other one was said by a colleague of mine who worked for, I believe it was called Sepracor. He was a MSL, a medical science uh, officer, liaison, MSL. And I hope I don't block on his name. I am right now. Oh, darn. Anyway, I'm blocking on his name right now, as I do with almost everybody. And he said, um, Dean Hadley, or Dean Handley is his name. And he's actually asked me to make this quote of his famous. And the quote is, we live with insomnia today because at some point in our evolutionary past, insomnia allowed us to live. Okay. What both of these men are trying to say to us is, look, if sleep is driven by two dynamic processes, one of them is circadian. Hey, it's dark out, time to sleep. And if one of them is homeostatic, hey, you've been awake for 18 hours, time to sleep, then we will be driven into sleep regardless of time of day, well, regardless of external circumstances. When the time is right, and when you've been awake for long enough. And that can't be possible because, at least from an evolutionary standpoint, if there's danger, you should not sleep. You should not sleep. You should run. Right. <laughs> and, and so it is logical that an ada a adaptive thing is acute insomnia. If there is perceived or real threat, initiate override, go sleepless until resolution. Okay, that the designers meant that to happen. That is part the undeclared, unheralded, uncelebrated part of the fight flight response is insomnia, sleeplessness. 
Okay. Now you may say, great, acute's fine. How does that go so wrong? How does that become chronic? That can't be good, and it is not good. It is a risk factor for all sorts of mental illness and medical illness. So protracted insomnia, varying with how resilient and healthy the person is, is a risk factor for all sorts of bad stuff. Okay, so how do we get from acute to chronic? That's a matter of argument, but most of us believe the first step in that downward spiral of events is the minute you try to recover lost sleep. The very best thing you can do when you have a bad night is nothing. Don't get out of bed later, don't nap, and don't go to bed early unless you absolutely have to for daytime function reasons. Like you're a pilot or a surgeon. I don't mean just because you want to go and be nice at the market today. Okay. And if you have to make adaptations, you have to balance the books. So the slogan I use is when you have a bout of insomnia, do absolutely nothing. Nothing means don't compensate in any way. This is the new sleep hygiene. When you have a bout of insomnia, do nothing. But if you must do something or you cannot resist doing something, balance the books. What does that mean? If I had a miserable night last night and against my better judgment, the alarm went off at six and I slept till eight. And if it is normally the case that I go to bed at 10 o'clock, what time should I go back to bed tonight to balance the books? You try 10, but you may lay there and not fall asleep. Exactly. 12. You borrowed from the bank. You got up at eight instead of six. You're now overdrew your account. You owe two hours. If you normally go to bed at 10, you go to bed at 12. Now, this stuff is counterintuitive. This is why therapists deliver some of this good news. All right. But as a strategy for dealing with acute insomnia, when you get stressed, do nothing. And it'll be the hardest nothing you ever do. Have another cup of coffee. Okay. Stay awake. And address whatever is stressing you out to the best of your ability. But do not adjust your sleep schedule. There is the new sleep hygiene. It's easy to remember. Okay. Watch. When you have insomnia, what do you do? Nothing. How hard is that to remember? Gotcha. Okay. Well, we're, um, we've gone long. You have a lot to say. but um, <laughs> I always do. Let's, yeah, let's wrap for now. So what is the best way, since it's very important to you, again, the director and how to find a CBTI therapist. So people go. I'm going to look that up for us now, but I will say when you're looking for a CBTI therapist, you want to see how long they've been doing it. Um, you want to see if they have specific training. You want to see if they're board certified in it. Um, now that board is relatively new and on again, off again. But those are some good signs. Um, so I built this directory, which I'm now looking for. Here we go. I built this directory to allow people to see, are they boarded? Not just where are they and do they claim they're great. It's where are they, how do I contact them, and what's their training? And are they board certified? So it's the only directory that allows patients to kind of figure out, <laughs> is this person any good? And I think that that's really important. It's actually quite easy. I think it's just 
www.cbti.directory, um, probably.com. What I'll do is we can post it in the, in the show notes. Good. So let me thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you being here. Sure. Hope it's been interesting. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.